You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. As you're being seated, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. Last week we wrapped up John chapter 1 looking at the calling of the first disciples and how they responded to that call. So today we'll move into John chapter 2 here in just a minute. Uh, looking back at last week's sermon, we, we talked about how Ju- uh, Jesus chooses to follow us, changes us in the process of calling us to follow him, and then equipping us to call others to come experience him as well. And so uh, we see that play out last week at the end of John chapter 1 where uh, John uh, or where John the Baptist points some of his disciples to Jesus. Jesus calls those disciples to come follow him. Um, and then in response to their they're learning from Jesus, the teaching that they're receiving, they go and gather others to come follow Jesus as well. And so we talked a lot from an application standpoint last week about uh, acting in response to the teaching that you're hearing, right? That the first two disciples uh, responded very quickly to what they were being taught by John the Baptist so that when the Lamb of God shows up, the Lamb of God that they had been hearing so extensively about from John the Baptist, they're immediately ready to turn their allegiance to him, right? And so we want to be faithful like that as well. We want to put ourselves under good teaching, and we want to respond when there's opportunities to apply the things that we are learning. We want to secondly know our purpose for living. When uh, Andrew and the other disciple come to Jesus inquiring of him, uh, Jesus responds with a question, right? And says, um, What's your purpose, basically? Like, like, what are you seeking in life? And so we certainly need to be people who know the worthy things that, that are to be sought in this life, and we need to take intentional steps to seek those worthy things. We talked about sharing what you are learning with others, uh, that we need to see value in the things that we are learning, and then we need to be uh, motivated and passionate about sharing it with others. We're, we're, we're valuing things like YouTube videos or sports stories or other information that we want to pass along to other people. Uh, We need to see the value of what we're teaching and what we're learning and what we're reading and be able to pass that on to others as well. All right. We talked about listening to people who who you know love you, right? Peter responds very quickly to his brother, responds very quickly to his brother coming and and sharing the, the gospel or sharing the news about Jesus. And Peter doesn't really question it, just immediately jumps in, immediately wants to follow. And I told you it's important for us to have people in our life that can share things with us, that can expose us to things that maybe we haven't been exposed to yet, and we're very quick to listen to those people, people that we value, people that we, we uh, appreciate their wisdom, that we want to surround ourselves with people like that that we can respond to very quickly. Um, we need to expect to be changed when we come to Jesus, right? That Peter comes and uh, Jesus talks about the change that's going to occur in him, and he demonstrates that through the name change. We talked about being a, an influence of those around us. We talked about the influence that Nathaniel um, or that the, the Andrew and his family would have had in that area and how it leads other people to want to, to come and follow Jesus, right? And so not only do we, want, do we not want to be a distraction to the gospel in our workplace, right? We, wanna, we don't want to detract from the gospel, but we also want to be actively presenting and sharing what it means to follow Jesus in our context as well. We talked about inviting skeptics rather than arguing with them. You may encounter a friend, a family member, a coworker who is resistant to Jesus, doesn't want to listen to you talk about Jesus. At that point, it may be best to try to invite them to come experience Jesus in the context of the local church. Have them come and, and experience people beyond just you that are seeking to follow Jesus. 
right? And that's what happens with Nathaniel coming um, at the end of John chapter two, or John chapter one. And then we talked about being uh, submissive rather than defensive. Um, we want to uh, appreciate the aspects that Jesus knows us and wants to know us and does know us and that through the local church we can be known as well and not become defensive, right? When Jesus kind of exposes uh, Nathaniel as to what he is, both from a positive standpoint, um, being a man without deceit, but also kind of exposes and knows exactly what Nathaniel's doing with his time, right? Nathaniel doesn't see that as intrusive, doesn't get defensive about that. Instead, he sees that as a sign of, of Jesus's deity, right? And desires that and craves that more. And then we talked about remaining in all of the gospel, to rejoice over the current work that God is doing, but to anticipate even more. Uh, Jesus talks about, man, if you think this is great, just wait till you see the other things that I'm going to do, greater things than these is what he says there at the end of chapter one. And so the application last week, I challenged you, is there anybody in your life that doesn't know your testimony that needs to? Is there anybody that, that doesn't know what it looked like for you to start following Jesus that you could share that with in hopes that maybe it will help lead them to following Jesus as well? All right, we come to John chapter two now, and I wanna read for us our text starting in verse one. It says, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples, When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, And did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Our summary sentence for today. When it is consistent with his purpose and timing, Jesus has power to meet every need, frequently using us to help him do so. And and as we see his power on display around us, it should lead us to believe in him more and more. When it is consistent with his purpose and timing, Jesus has power to meet every need, frequently using us to help him to do so. And as we see his power on display around us, it should lead us to believe in him more and more. For our kids, Jesus will meet any of our needs that fit into his plan, right? And so that's the, the helpful precursor that we're gonna, we're gonna expound upon today as we look at this passage, is that Jesus works and moves and does things that are consistent with his purpose and his timing, okay? He's not somebody that we, we simply come to with our list of demands, our list of wants, and then he kind of picks and chooses what to do and what not to do. And he certainly doesn't pick and choose based on what he has power to do and what he lacks power to do. And there's, there's all kinds of cases where Jesus will, will work and move and do one thing for one person in one situation and not do the exact same thing for another person who's in a very similar, if not identical, situation. And so that leaves us with the question of, why, why did Jesus not do both in both situations, right? If he's capable of doing this for one, why would he not also do it for another And that's where the precursor is so important, is that when it is consistent with his purpose and his timing, that's when Jesus uses his power to meet every need. 
He frequently uses us to help him do so. And as we see his power on display around us, it should lead us to believe in him more and more. This is one of those stories where most of us probably heard it as a child growing up. Um, Most of us could probably retell this story to our kids without really having to reference the scripture too much. But I also think it's one of those stories where because it's so familiar to us, it is the type of story that we might share with somebody without using the actual text to do so. And some of the key parts of this story are completely missed in our retelling of it. Because some of the most important details for understanding this story don't feel like they're that important to us when we're just telling the narrative aspect of this, right? I mean, I mean, the gist of the story is that Jesus is at a wedding. They run out of wine. Jesus turns water into wine, right? But there's some key details as to where the, where the water comes from that, that gives a lot of meaning to why this passage is even included for us, okay? And so we're going to see uh, some of the, the important aspects, some of the important details um, about this story by looking at it textually versus just a a retelling of it in story format, okay? Jesus, his, his band of followers show up at this wedding. It's most likely a family member uh, or a friend or some type of connection with Jesus um, because of the fact that his mother is so heavily involved in the behind-the-scenes work of this wedding. Uh, we don't know whose wedding it is, um, but it seems like it's probably some type of connection with Jesus's family, uh, it could also be a connection with Nathaniel because we find in John 21 2 that Nathaniel, not just from Galilee, but he's from Cana. Um, so Nathaniel probably has some type of connection with this, um, with this wedding as well. The major problem in this story is that there's a lack of wine at this wedding, right? Um, they're, they're running out of the, the, the important drink that's a part of this celebration. Um, weddings have changed and progressed and, and, and looked different over the years, over the decades, over the centuries. Um, at this point in time, when weddings are taking place in this culture, uh, the bridegroom was responsible for the wedding, not the bride. So in, in our culture today, the, the, the bride or the bride's family typically take care of the, the wedding portion. Oftentimes the, the bridegroom or the, the groom will take place of the rehearsal dinner, right? And so that's kind of how the costs sometimes are spread out in our culture today. Back in this culture, back in this time, the bridegroom would have been responsible for all of these preparations. He was extremely important to the wedding. Um, and this indicates to us that there was some failure potentially on his part as the bridegroom, that potentially he failed to plan appropriately for the wedding, um, that more people showed up than expected, or maybe the guests drank more than anticipated. Uh, something led to this shortage of wine, um, and it ultimately points back to the bridegroom. He would have been held responsible for this. Um, and it's not like running out of wedding cake at a wedding to where you just kind of leave saying, oh, they should, have, they should have baked a little bit more. They should have planned a little bit differently, right? And then you would just kind of dismiss it and say, no big deal. Um, for them, uh, a failure in this part would have been a huge social issue, a huge social embarrassment because of how big of a deal wedding celebrations were. So you would have dealt with the, the embarrassment socially of throwing this party and not really delivering on it. But what's crazy too is that you actually opened yourself up to a lawsuit potentially if you failed to deliver appropriate food and drink at one of these parties, which is, which is crazy to think about, that you're the guest 
and you get the option to sue if they run out of food and drink while you're there, right? Like, like that's a foreign concept to us. I mean, imagine showing up at Super Bowl party or, or something at Ben's house and running out of wings and being like, okay, this is completely unacceptable, right? Like, my lawyer will be speaking to you about this. I mean, that, like, that just does, that doesn't even cross our mind that that would be an issue, and yet that's how weddings were handled. That's how weddings were handled in this culture, and so it helps us to better understand why Jesus would even act right here, right? Like, he's not at a Super Bowl party, and they run out of Coke or wings, and so he, he magically brings these about so that everybody can have their needs satisfied. This would have potentially been damaging for the family that was hosting this, this wedding. It could have been, again, a, a massive social embarrassment, but even potentially a financial burden had he not delivered here. So it at least expands our understanding of why this was an issue, that it wasn't just a luxury thing, that there really was uh, some things at play here that probably made Jesus sensitive to the situation. The story marks the beginning of Jesus' miraculous signs. There's a textual claim here that, the, that this is Jesus' first miracle, uh, which helps debunk some of the extra-biblical things, extra-biblical writings that, that sometimes try to talk about Jesus doing some crazy stuff when he was like a kid, right? Like Jesus wasn't sitting around at the playground making clay pigeons and then turning them into real pigeons like some writings would say that he did, right? This is the, the Gospel of John, uh, an eyewitness to these things, and he is testifying to us. This is when Jesus began to use his power in this way, okay? Um, we know, already looking at the Gospel of John, that John chooses specific stories, specific teachings, and specific miracles to help us believe, okay? He chooses certain things to help us believe. Now, I think one of the reasons this miracle is chosen, beyond it being the first miracle, which kind of introduces, introduces Jesus' power, we understand Jesus to be our bridegroom throughout the New Testament, right? Like weddings point to a bigger picture, a bigger story, right? The uniting of, of Jesus with his bride, the church. And so we're about to have a lot of weddings that are connected with Sovereign Hope over the next year over the next couple of weeks and months even, right? And so that theme is going to be presented by whoever's officiating the wedding, that what we are doing here is a picture of a greater reality, and that's Jesus in the church, right? Jesus playing the role of the bridegroom. So in this miracle, yes, he turns water into wine. Yes, he provides for these people at, at this wedding feast, but ultimately he's showing himself to be the superior bridegroom, right? That, that while this bridegroom failed failed in his delivery to provide for the people at this wedding, Jesus will not. That he is the superior bridegroom who supplies the superior wine who satisfies, who satisfies our needs abundantly. Okay, so there, there's a reason I think that John chooses to do this, why he chooses to include this miracle, and it's to help us see as this picture continues to unfold, Jesus, the new covenant, and what that means that Jesus is the superior bridegroom. All right. It's also a reminder to us as we see these, uh, these jars that have a purpose of Old Testament purification, they're being transformed, right? And so this flows right along with what we've been talking about in the book of Hebrews, which led us to the Gospel of John, that there's a transition that takes place from old to new, right? And so this is a picture of the old fading away, the old passing away, these shadows of greater realities. Those greater realities are now coming to, to be seen. And so the, the shadow now starts to fade away. Um, we're going to see that in regards to the temple 
right? We're going we're gonna to see that in regards to several things over the next several weeks and months as we look at some of these stories. Jesus showing that the Old Testament stuff, it's fading away in its purpose in that it was pointing to greater things, and now those greater things are here. Jesus showing that there is going to be a greater way now to understand purification, that it's not through these Old Testament rituals, that it's through his blood, which we represent through wine, even at the Lord's Supper, okay? So that's just by way of introduction to kind of help us better understand the context of this story um, and what exactly is going on uh, behind the scenes. Okay, so summary sentence. When it's consistent with his purpose and timing, Jesus has the power to meet every need, frequently using us to help him to do so. And as we see his power on display around us, it should lead us to believe him more and more. And that's certainly the flow of this passage. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was invited to the wedding with his disciples, and when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. The first thing that I want us to see this morning is that we need to understand that God's purpose and timing shape his actions. That God's purpose and timing shape his actions. For our kids, God does the right thing at the right time. And that's the important piece to it, that for for Jesus to act, for God the Father to act, for the Holy Spirit to move and act, it has to be consistent with, with the overall big picture purpose for what God is seeking to do, what God is wanting to do. Because sometimes it's absolutely part of his purpose and plan and timing to heal somebody, and in other cases, it's absolutely not part of his plan. In fact, the opposite is part of his plan, to not heal for whatever reason, right? So um, we have to filter our circumstances and certainly filter our reaction to other people's circumstances through a big picture lens versus our individual lens, right? Because for us, if it's all about us and what we want and what we think Jesus should do, and we see Jesus doing it for somebody else, then it could easily cause jealousy and discontentment on our part. Why does this person have a job and I don't, right? Why does this person have a baby and I don't? Why does this person have a spouse and I don't, right? We we could filter all of life's circumstances through a selfish lens of, why is God doing it for that, that person and why is he not doing it for me? And then it begins to become a comparison of, that person's not even as faithful to Jesus as I am. Why are they getting the things and I'm not getting the things, right? We have to filter our circumstances through the fact that God moves and works based on his purposes and his timing. It's what shapes his actions, okay? Jesus shows up at this wedding. He puts himself into other people's circumstance, and there is a problem that arises in this circumstance, okay? So we could put all of ourselves into any and every circumstance that we encountered this week And most of us could probably identify a problem that existed every single day this week. And sometimes maybe God answered prayers that we had for those problems, and maybe sometimes he didn't answer them the way that we wanted to. Here, there is a problem, and Jesus' mother is one who is cued into the problem, and she brings that problem to Jesus. They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. First thing I want you to see here is that he isn't a genie that responds to man's every want. He isn't a genie that responds to man's every want. 
Now, we don't know from the text exactly what Mary is asking for here, but it's certainly implied that she wants him to resolve the situation, that, that she brings the situation to him. Now, keep in mind, if the text is accurate, which I believe that it is, that he hasn't worked miracles previously, she doesn't have any reason to experience-wise know that he's done something like this before. But there's probably a transition in her mind. She, she knows that he's the Messiah, and she now sees him functioning differently than he had previously been doing growing up, right? Growing up, he had been a part of her family, her house, had probably even supported her uh, in the midst of whatever happens to Joseph, who's not mentioned again after really the, the birth scene in the early part of Jesus's life. So Jesus has been functioning as a son primarily, and now there's this transition to where he's got public ministry, he's being viewed as a rabbi, and so his functionality has shifted. And so she's probably anticipating, in light of that change, I can now expect you to do some of these things miraculously, right? And so she comes to him and identifies this problem, but Jesus is very quick to help her see that there is a transition to not focusing on the family's business, but his father's business, right? So he has been identifying with Mary primarily as a son to a mother, appropriately so, right? Jesus was completely obedient to his parents for however long Joseph was around and then continued to be submissive to his mother. And that's how he was kind of relating to her as mother and son. Now, when Jesus embraces his public ministry, he has to help her understand there's a shift now in our relationship. There's a shift now in our relationship that I'm not your, your son solely now. I am your Messiah. I am your Savior. And you're going to have to approach me the same way as every other person. Right? And so this is where some denominations, some churches, some religions would get this wrong in regards to Mary. That, that Mary has no unique advantage, no unique relationship with Jesus when it comes to salvation, she has to come just like everybody else. And he's helping her see my relationship with you is different. And this was probably really hard for Mary. This was probably really, really hard for Mary to be the mom and now have to kind of come under not just spiritual authority, right, but messianic authority to her son. My mom and I have talked before. She visits our church frequently. We've talked before, and she's expressed to me, I don't know that I could ever really join your church and be a part of your church because I don't know that I could have you be my pastor, right? Because that would be a, a, a unique shift in our relationship to go from, fa- or go from mother and son relationship to now pastor and member relationship. And my mom said, I just don't know if I'm comfortable with that right now, right? Like, I don't know if I need you pastoring me. I'm your mom, right? And so we haven't been able to make that transition yet. So she comes and she sits and she listens and she participates and then she primarily goes back to her church, right? Mary is at the point now where she's having to shift her understanding of how I relate to Jesus. Is he he her earthly son? Yeah. But he's far more than that. And he's always been far more than that. But now it's really becoming obvious, and Jesus will now demand that type of interaction, okay? And so Jesus, I think, in this awkward interaction, there's absolutely no disrespect here from Jesus to his mother, the way we read it, we would certainly think, man, that's really disrespectful for him to just call her woman. This would have been an appropriate way of referencing her. It would not be an intimate way of referencing her, right? He's not calling her mother or mom here. He's, he's basically calling her ma'am in our language, 
right? Um, and so there, there's a, a, a lack of um, intimacy in how he addresses her. But again, that's part of the shift, right? Like, like I'm not your son only now. Like, I, I need you to see me in this, this new role that I'm embracing and really becoming more public with, okay? So he doesn't respond to his mother's earthly request right away. And I think the way he even addresses it, because the, the question that I would ask is, why does he tell her he's, 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 his hour's not here, and then he ends up doing what seemingly like what she asked him to do, and that was to fix the problem, right? I think he wants everybody that's around listening, the disciples and maybe even the servants, to understand what I'm about to do is not because my mom asked me to do it. He needs them to understand the new relationship that he's got with his mom, too, that Whatever I'm about to do is not because mommy came and asked me to do it. Like, I'm not doing something for my mom here. What I will now be doing moving forward is my father's business, which, again, has really always been the case. We see that at the temple where he says that that he's about his father's business. But he's really, I think, addressing his mom here in such a way to where there's no confusion as to who's in charge of what he's about to do, that he's not being pushed and manipulated by a family member. Now, we see this in other gospel accounts in other situations. In Mark chapter 3, verse 32. Mark chapter 3, verse 32. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So here's another situation where he is reinterpreting the relationship that he enjoys with what has been his mother and his siblings. Is that, hey, you don't get to show up at a meeting and demand my presence because of our family ties and me come running because of that. He says, here are my mother and brothers. Right, So he is reinterpreting his relationship with people here. In Luke chapter 11, we see another incident of this. Luke chapter 11, verse 27 and 28. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the woman that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Right, So he even downplays the importance of his mother publicly when somebody wants to kind of praise her and raise her up and elevate her he says hold your hold your horses right there for a second the people that are really blessed are people that hear me and respond and do what i'm saying now is mary in that group absolutely so she is absolutely blessed but not because she's the mom but because she's a hear and doer of the word just like everybody else that's blessed right so jesus is helping people understand new relationship here between me and mary He chooses to work the miracle, but in his specific way, right? So he indicates that there is an hour that is coming that is not yet, right? And John is going to reference this hour throughout the Gospels. Now, for those of you that, that don't understand this, the hour is when he will suffer for our sins and be put on display. It's when he will absorb God's wrath so that we can become righteousness, Okay, and that hour has not yet come. And we will see throughout this gospel Jesus retracting himself from situations to where that hour would come prematurely. That Jesus will work and do certain things to certain people and then not do certain things in certain situations to provoke people 
that would cause that hour to come too early. Jesus remains completely in control. And you can jot these down. I'll read a couple of them. John chapter 7, verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Right? They want to do this, but God withholds them from doing it because it's not the appropriate time. John chapter 8, verse 20. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. You fast forward into John chapter 12, John chapter 13. So John 12, 23, 13, 1, and John 17, 1. Then you start to see Jesus change his language and say the hour is now here or the hour has now come. Because as we get to the end of the gospel, it is time for that suffering to ensue. It is time for him to be put on display, to be uh, bearing our sin and absorbing God's wrath. Okay, so he's quick to identify here that whatever he does is not going to bring about God's plan prematurely, that it's going to be calculated when he reacts to this situation. It's going to be intentional when he acts in this situation. Okay, Um, Mary chooses to trust him to do what is best. Right, So she comes to him, he says this, <coughs> and then she seemingly leaves the situation. She sa- it says, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. It's almost as though she comes to grips with what just happened there too. That I don't know what he's going to do, and I know I'd probably have my own inclinations as to tell you what to do, servants, but do whatever he tells you to do. There, there's kind of this understanding from Mary that I'm going to trust him to do what is right in this situation and not try to dictate it myself. And that's where we've got to be as well. I put in my notes, um, how often do, do I grow frustrated when God doesn't act in ways that I would have predicted? He doesn't have to fix the wine problem here. And, and Mary could have said, do whatever he tells you. And she could have walked away and Jesus could have said, did you not hear me? It's not my hour. Like I'm not gonna do anything here, Right? And Mary would have had to been content with that. Do whatever he tells you. Not do whatever he tells you to fix the problem, just do whatever he tells you to do, right? So there's this this coming to grips for Mary even that I'm gonna be content with however Jesus chooses to handle this situation. I'm gonna trust that he's going to do what's best here. She instructs the servants to do whatever he says to do rather than what she wants them to do. He isn't a genie that responds to man's every want. Number two, his actions are calculated and based on the big picture. His actions are calculated based on the big picture. So he does decide to do something here, not because mom asked him to, but because he's about his father's business. And he says, now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. His actions are calculated based on the big picture. He chooses to work a miracle in a way that shows that the Old Testament is fading. We said this earlier, that the ritualistic purification piece here with the jars and the the washings that it would have taken place. And so, um, it's possible these jars are empty because people coming to this wedding had utilized this for clean, cleaning purposes. They would have used it to clean themselves. They would have used it to clean their, their utensils. And Jesus is showing that that piece, that piece of the Old Testament is fading away, that the rituals are giving away to something greater, that the shadow is passing because the substance is here. And what he does is he fills those jars with something radically different than what they normally house. 
right? They were, they were housing water for purification. Now they're going to be filled with wine. And the picture that we see in the New Testament is that Jesus's blood and wine are kind of used uh, synonymously at times, that they together, blood, wine, would be the new greater way to purification. What do we see in Revelation 7 that we studied, 14? It's the saints washing their garments in the blood of the lamb, right? And, and we would say, how do you get a white garment by soaking it in, in blood? Like, you wouldn't earthly, right? But from a spiritual sense, that's the only way to get your garments clean. It's the only way to make them white is to wash them and to have them cleansed by the blood of the lamb. It's the only way to become white as snow, right? So even this Old Testament shadow we talked about in the book of Hebrews, None of these sacrifices, none of these rituals could really take care of a human being, couldn't cleanse the conscience, couldn't eradicate sin. Jesus shows up like this is meant to prepare you for the greater thing to fill these jars with, and that's going to be the wine. That's going to be my blood. So he chooses to work this miracle, not just to satisfy a group of people that are celebrating a wedding, but as a teaching lesson for his disciples who are ingrained in the Jewish rituals to understand, hey, things are changing here. Like those jars are being used differently by our rabbi. He chooses to work the miracle in a way that shows the Messiah has arrived. You guys remember back when we were studying Genesis, Genesis chapter 49. It might be the first time that I've ever referenced this story in a sermon. And it came in Genesis chapter 49 when uh, Jacob is blessing his sons and he's blessing Judah. And it says in Genesis 49.9, or 49.8, Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub from the prey, my son, you have grown up or gone up. He stooped down, he, cr- he crosses a lion. And as a lioness, who dares arouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foil to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. Does anybody remember the point that I made when we were, when we were reading this passage? Like, like what's, what's the reference? What's actually going on there? Like, what's the promise there? Right, the idea that the donkey's being tied to the best vines means that the donkey's probably gonna do what? He's probably gonna eat, eat what's on the vine, right? And that would have been a, a poor financial decision if you were overly concerned about the preciousness of your vines. But the implication here was that when the Messiah comes through Judah, he brings excess wine. He brings it to the point to where it's almost common that there's so much abundance, there's so much excess of it, that it's a common thing, not something that you have to protect, right? Like you wouldn't be worried necessarily about the donkey eating the grass because there's grass everywhere, Right? But you wouldn't want him eating your your grapes because that's your harvest and those are precious to you. So you would have never tied your donkey up near the grapes. You would certainly never use costly wine to wash your clothes. But the implication here is that there's excess wine through the Messiah. There's abundance that comes. And so I referenced this. Uh, At that time, I said, let's go to John chapter 2 because that's what Jesus is doing at this wedding Right? He is initiating himself as the Messiah, not on this big grand scale, but to a, a small group of people that are entrusting themselves to him. 
He wants them to connect the fact that, hey, there's a lot of wine here, and you've been waiting for a time when a lot of wine would be here. In Isaiah chapter 55, another passage in the Old Testament, there's several passages in the Old Testament that talk about the excess of wine and connecting it to the coming of the Messiah. Isaiah 55, 1, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Right? It's not expensive. It's not something that, that, that is withheld for the rich only. Right? Like there's this excess of wine that's talked about here that you come and you drink and you drink till your heart's content kind of a picture here. So Jesus, again, is very intentional. He's choosing to do this miracle, but he's doing it for a bigger purpose than just satisfying the menu demands of a wedding. Wine also throughout the, the Old Testament, two passages, Judges chapter 9, verse 13, Psalm 104, 15. Oftentimes, wine is equated with joy. They're sometimes used synonymously. And the universal experience of mankind is that without Jesus, at some point, the wine and the joy runs out. That without Jesus, you may have some wine, you may have some joy. At some point, that's going to expire. At some point, that is going to be exhausted. But with Jesus, our joy doesn't run out. Our wine doesn't, it's never exhausted, right? And so that's the picture of what we see through this miracle. We need to understand that God's purpose and timing shape his actions. Number two, we need to be obedient to act as part of God's miracle working. We need to be obedient to act as part of God's miracle working. For our kids, we must always do whatever Jesus tells us to do. Be obedient to act as part of God's miracle working. The servants get the instruction from the mother. Mary says, do whatever he tells you to do, right? Jesus identifies these these six pitchers, these six jars that are going to hold 20 to 30 gallons each. So these aren't your typical pitchers and these aren't your typical jars, right? Like these are, these are hefty pots. These are heavy pots. And if you're thinking about having to draw the water to fill them, it's going to take a little bit of time to do it too. We have no idea how many servants are here, so there's no way to really break down like what type of time investment was there here. But it certainly would have taken some time to fill these pots, right? So number one here, we need to be willing to do whatever he says if we want to be used. And that's exactly what's happening here. God is using human agents to carry out this miracle. One commentator said it's the supernatural power of God moving through human channels. That ought to be a humbling thing for us to think about, that God would choose to use his power in the lives of others and channel it through us. And some of you have been used by God in a miracle-type situation for other people. There's been something that you've done, something that you've brought to the table, some way that God orchestrated you in somebody else's life to essentially work a miracle for them. When we talk about, in our discussion groups, ways that God has worked and moved and things that he has done, rarely are those things going to be completely separate from some human being being used in the process. I mean, that's just the way God uses us. It's the way he, it's the way he accomplishes his plans, Right? He doesn't, he doesn't mass produce a gospel message across the globe without using individual disciples to go and make more disciples, 
right? So, so God loves to work miracles, and he loves to use human agents to be a part of that process. Now, nothing magical about the servants. They're not bringing any, any uh, superpowers to the table here to help this process. They're just being obedient. They're just being a part of the process. They get to, they get to experience it and be used by God. If we want to have that type of role in the lives of other people, we just have to be willing to do whatever Jesus tells us to do, right? We can't pick and choose some things we will do, some things we won't do. We have to be committed to doing whatever he tells us to do. Six jars, 20 to 30 gallons. We're talking about 120 to 180 gallons of water that have to be filled in these jars. Now, a little side note here that I love when reading this passage that I think is worth mentioning, right? The servants chose to fill them to the max. And this is absolutely the type of employee that you want if you're the employer. That if I'm going to tell you to do something, that you are going to do it to the max without me even having to clarify what the max is. Right? There's no textual evidence here that Jesus says, fill them and fill them to the max. There's no textual evidence that Jesus has to come and look into the jars and say, dudes, come on, I told you to fill it to the max. Go get some more, right? Like we're waiting on you. I'm ready to do this miracle, but you're like half-heartedly filling these things up. There's no evidence that that had to take place, right? Mary says, man, do whatever this guy tells you to do. Jesus says, fill them up. And their response was to fill them up. Fill them up. And it probably meant an extra trip or two for each jar to really fill it to the max, fill it to the brim, why is that important? Well, one, there's absolutely no way to, uh, to trick anybody here about what, come out of, what comes out of this jar, right? Like there's no sleight of hand here where I've got water in here, but I've also got some wine in this cup and I'm gonna kind of dip it in there and it looks like I pulled out wine, but there's still just water in there, right? Like it's filled to the max. Like I can't, I can't, I can't do anything to trick you here. I love the fact that these servants worked with excellence, I know for me, like not obviously not every time, but when when my boss asks me asks me to do something, even if he tells me like, "Hey, I need this done by Friday," and it's Monday, I can guarantee it's going to be done way before Friday. That's just the way that I operate. When I'm given something to be done by my employer, my my desire is to do it with excellence. And again, obviously, I don't always do that, but my mentality typically is I'm going to do this with excellence, and I'm going to surprise you with how quickly I get that done and how well I do it, right? Like, I want my employer to come back and be like, whoa, like I said, fill it up, and you really filled that up. Like, I wasn't even thinking to the brim, and you filled it to the brim, right? That's, that's a lesson for all of us in whatever context we find ourselves in where we have somebody above us asking us to do things that as Christ followers, we ought to, we ought to do it to the best of our abilities with excellence and do it early, and just get it done early. Separate ourselves from lost people who are doing the exact same things as us. Do it with excellence and get it done early. Mary says, do whatever he tells you to do. Now, is Jesus your boss at work and telling you to do the certain things? Yeah, kind of, right? Because authorities are placed over us by God's power. God's the one that puts our bosses in place. He's the ones that puts our, our local officials in place. He's the one that puts our president in place, right? So in a sense, yes. Whatever assignment you've been given by your boss, indirectly it was given to you by God. And you ought to do it with excellence and you ought to do it early. You ought to get it done as quickly as you can with as much excellence as you're capable of. Those servants simply work to do that. 
right? Um, and they do it well. And Jesus works the miracle in response to their obedience. They fill them up to the brim. Then Jesus says, draw some out, take it to the master of the feast. So they took it when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. Number two, we need to be ready to point others to him who deserves the credit. When God chooses to use us in situations where we are kind of channeling his power into the life of somebody else. He's using us to be a blessing. He's using us to serve somebody. Let's don't miss an opportunity to give him the credit. Now, there's no evidence here that anybody took credit for this situation, right? There's, there's kind of a silence here about this. But certainly the question is raised by, the, by this guy. He says, well, this doesn't make any sense. Normally at a wedding, the, the bad wine comes at the end because everybody's too drunk to realize that it's no good, right? Like you give them the best up front, get them a little tipsy on it, then you can bring the other stuff that's maybe even diluted and watered down and just not as tasteful because they're too, they're too, uh, they're too drunk to realize it. But he says, this is, this is better than the first stuff. So it almost demands kind of an explanation because he brings the, the bridegroom and the bridegroom's probably thinking, I thought I did serve the best stuff first, right? Now, the servants know what happened here, the Bible tells us. So I would assume there were conversations that took place outside of what we have here in the text. The bridegroom probably would have pulled the servants aside and been like, where'd you find this stuff, right? Like, like I told you to serve the best stuff first. Where did this stuff come from? And I heard we were running out, and now we have so much. This is a great chance for the servants to demonstrate credit to where credit is due, right? Not that, oh, you won't believe this, master. Like, we found this stuff, and, and, or we held it back because we knew this might happen, right? Like, this would have been a chance for them to give credit where credit is due. And hopefully they took advantage of that. It's certainly a good indicator to us that we have to do that. When God chooses to use us, we give him the credit for anything that he accomplishes through us. Number three, keep believing Jesus more as he shows himself faithful. Verse 11, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana and Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. For our kids, we need to believe in Jesus more and more. Keep believing Jesus more as he shows himself faithful. Number one, we need to recognize the deeper meanings when Jesus works. He's not just doing a miracle here, but a sign. And the way we understand a sign in Scripture is that it's a significant display of power that points beyond itself to something deeper. A significant display of power that points itself to something deeper. Now, I'm sure words started to spread, rumors, unconfirmed accounts that at the local Johnson wedding, they were running out of wine, and all of a sudden at the end, there was this excess of wine. It's the best stuff I've ever tasted. And I heard that somebody magically produced this stuff, right? And so there would have been rumors. There would have been people sharing their version of YouTube videos about this, right? Like there would have been an excitement about what happened at this wedding that the best tasting wine you've ever had came at the very end of the wedding when, when we had been told there was no more, that there wasn't any more wine, that it was all gone. But I think the, the, the disciples picked up on the fact that there's way more going on here than just wine being produced because it says they believed in him. 
I think the disciples walked away getting the deeper meaning of what just took place here. Not, did you see what he just did? He just made water turn into wine. I think there was some serious discussion about, do you see what he just did there? Like he took jars that we normally use for purification with water and he did something, he did something totally different with them. And do you remember what we've read before? Remember, remember what Jacob promised to Judah about the excess of wine? Do you remember what Isaiah talks about, that, that there's a time coming where we can come and, and drink freely of wine? Like I think they, I think they grasp the deeper, the deeper meaning of some of this. Now, this is where for us, with our circumstances, we have to recognize that when Jesus does something miraculous in our life, that there's probably more going on than just the part that we want to testify as the miracle, right? Like, you're not going to believe this. My, my mom or my dad or my granddad had cancer, and it was stage four. I mean, they gave him zero chance of living, and then he went back, and they can't find a trace of it. Right? You, you hear that story and you say, man, glory to God that, that, that he worked a miracle there and, and healed that individual. And it's not uncommon to be sitting in a situation where somebody else raises their hand and says, um, my mom has stage four cancer and, and hospice was called this week and, and, and she's probably going to die at any moment. And then that person does die. And so it's very easy to surface level say, God worked a miracle of healing here and not a miracle of healing here here and kind of walk away going, why? But I would argue there was something deeper going on in the miracle of healing in the other situation. Because I, I want you to, if you don't hear anything else that I say this morning, I want you to hear this. The true miracle of the wedding is the change in the disciples rather than the jars, right? And that's the piece that we would probably miss if we were just telling the story to our kids. Hey, there was this wedding and Jesus made water into wine. Oh, there was a wedding where Jesus worked a miracle and he took hearts that were learning to believe in him and he, and he caused them to believe in him even more than they were before. Now, now, these are people that have already believed in Jesus. And this is another piece that I think we've got to hit on too as we kind of wrap up here. Number two, we need to see that belief is an ongoing process rather than a one-time decision only. Believing in Jesus is an ongoing process rather than a one-time decision only. It's really what we mean when we talk about perseverance. Now, not that you're in danger of believing and then not believing or, or falling away. You started as a Christian, then you lost your salvation. But I think this is the, probably the best way to explain what do you do with a five-year-old or a six-year-old who responds to the gospel, gets saved, and then they're 18 years old and they're like, I don't think I got saved back then because I feel like I, I believe in Jesus way more now than I did back then. Well, you should. You should believe in Jesus a whole lot more now as an 18-year-old than you did as a six-year-old, but it doesn't mean that you didn't believe as a six-year-old, right? These guys we just read in chapter one, they believed Jesus and they followed him, and now we're being told that they believe in him again. And it's not because they needed to get saved again, right? That They're believers now. But every time Jesus does something and we read about the disciples believing him, they're just moving forward in some of their sanctification. They're just believing in him more. And that really should be our response every time God's doing things in our lives. And he's giving us all kinds of reasons to believe in him more on a daily basis. 
And every time we see God do something in our life, it ought to cause us to believe in him and to believe in him more. So don't view this passage about belief as something that you've already done. That's why I prayed before we even started this morning. God, help us to believe more in you today than when we walked in these doors. Right? Help us to see that, that sometimes you do things because it's part of your purpose and timing and, and not part of ours. And that's the answer to the question. Why did he heal here and not heal here? It just wasn't part of his purpose or timing. It was here and it wasn't here. Right? That we need to be obedient to act as part of God's miracle working. That, that God wants to use us in miraculous ways in the lives of others. And when we are used in that way and we see God doing things... Man, we ought to walk away from that situation giving glory to him and believing in him more. Not trying to steal credit for it and think that we're something, right? That when we hear about God doing things, it ought to cause us to believe in him more. Kind of looking back on this passage, what we see here, we see Jesus being obedient, but not to his mother, to his father, right? We see him being the great purifier in this passage, not through ritualistic jars of water, but he's redefining what purification means and it's going to be through his blood. And we see him being the great provider in this passage as well. While one bridegroom failed to deliver, our bridegroom will not. Some application thoughts to kind of leave you with here this morning. Number one, when times are good or bad, keep in mind that the best is yet to come. Just like sin offering the best up front with the worst to follow. That's what you typically got at a wedding. You got the best wine up front and then it tailed off at the end. Completely contrary when it comes to the Christian life. That we weather the storms now, we weather the trials and the tribulations now. When there's opportunities to doubt, we believe, realizing the best is yet to come. The best wine's at the end when it comes to following Jesus. So when times are good or bad, and and that's that's healthy to remember too when things are great, right? That that this isn't it. Like this isn't all we get. And don't bask and and glory in the good times too much either to where you lose sight of the eternal, right? Because you could get into a situation where you are so blessed that you are making so much money, you have so much wine at home that you lose sight of the eternal, and you stop being used by God, right? So good times and bad, keep in mind the best is still yet to come. Number two, when God does great things, we should let others know. When God does great things, we should let others know. Why? Because it's often a a way that he causes people to believe. He does a great thing here. He does a great thing here. It says the disciples believed in him. They believed in him more than they did before the wedding because of this great thing that he did. So let me encourage